You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, everybody. It's Jean Chatsky. I want you to think back for me a second and remember an experience that you had where you felt like you really blew something. It could have been a meeting. It could have been an interview. It could have been a conversation. It could have been a sporting event. Sporting event for me raises one very recently. I'm probably the least flexible person that any of you know. And if you doubt me on that, I will take a selfie trying to touch my toes and you'll see how close to my knees I actually am. But I've been working on this and I have been going to hot yoga a couple of times a week. I found this class near my house that I love because the instructor, Renee, has this incredibly foul mouth. And whenever people in the class, and it's a motley crew of yoga doers, which I feel very, very comfortable in. There's 60-year-old men with big bellies. There are young women who can do handstands. There's a guy at the front of the room who is annoying because he can turn himself into a pretzel. But she takes absolutely no attitude to anyone. And I don't routinely curse on this show, but I am going to curse now. So if you are bothered by that, you can just mute for just a second. But the first time I was in this class, somebody was given her attitude about the fact that they were tired and it was 6 p.m. and her response was, you downward dog and everybody went right into downward dog and that was the attitude for the class and I was like okay I am coming back to this class I can do yoga with these people but the last time that I was there she's leading us through and it's sort of a Bikram e class it's a hot yoga class because hot yoga helps me touch parts of my shins past my knees and she was leading us through some of these poses and she walked past me and she said Jean I don't even know what that is. And I felt like, okay, I, I, I wish that I had had enough confidence to say to her, it's yoga. But I said absolutely nothing. I think I just laughed and went on with my class. And failure and confidence, they're all tied together and they're all very integral to how we manage our money, how we manage our careers, how we manage our lives. And all of those are the reasons why I'm so happy that I've got an old friend on the phone today. We're with Rachel Simmons, and she's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Odd Girl Out, The Hidden Culture of Aggression in Girls. She also creates a lot of workshops and curricula that are designed to help young girls become young women with integrity and self-awareness. And the New York Times, and this is where I said, oh, I really have to give her a call, recently profiled one of her newer programs. It is called Failing Well. So we all need to learn how to do this. Rachel is on the phone. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Jean. I'm glad to be back. I'm really happy to have you. So 
for for listeners who are just getting to know you, tell me a little bit about your work from the beginning. Tell us about Odd Girl Out and what inspired it. Sure. I mean, so much of my work is inspired by my own girlhood. And I have to tell you that every time I publish a book that's about girls or young women, I everywhere I go, I have women coming up to me saying, well, this book is actually about me. And so I, I want to lead by saying that I think so many of us as women are still girls inside. And I don't mean that in a diminutive way. I just mean that well, a couple things. A lot of us haven't worked stuff out from when we were girls, but also there's just like a lot of similarities between the things that we are challenged by as girls and um, and the things that we're working on as women. So with Odd Girl Out, um, when I was a girl, I had been excluded by a friend who I really looked up to and it haunted me for years. Like I just would have these late night conversations with my college friends saying, did you ever have, ever have a girl who just sort of tormented you and made you feel like the worst and loneliest person in the world. And so it was really from those conversations with my female friends and also a major flame out as a Rhodes Scholar in Oxford. That was my big epic failure. I went off to Oxford, um, won this fellowship and ended up not only hating it, but quitting. And I sort of found myself at this crossroads where I had become quite a big achiever in life, but I also didn't know why I was doing it or who for. And so uh, a friend of mine said, hey, what do you really care about studying or what do you really want to know the answer to? And I said, I want to know why that girl was so mean to me in third grade. And so the story of how I got in my work, really, my career was launched by uh, then at that moment, the biggest failure I'd ever experienced. It's so interesting, and, and you talk about this meanness among young girls, but I've experienced it. My very first job was at a women's magazine. I've never been in a workplace that was more challenging in terms of getting along and expecting your colleagues to support you because they just didn't. And even more recently, I've read about mean girls, mean women in retirement homes. I mean, this culture is kind of pervasive with women not supporting other women. When is that going to change? Well, I think it changes when two things happen. One has to do with us and what we can control as women. And one has to do with something bigger than us, which is society. Uh, let's start with us. I think a lot of women and girls don't have the skills to say, listen, like, I don't like what you just did, or, you know, I didn't like the way you just spoke to me. And I want to talk to you about it. And I want to get to the other side of these difficult feelings. And so when those incidents accumulate, and they go unspoken. I think we see resentment. We see people not treating each other well. And we see, of course, outright bullying. And that's among women. But the other thing, the second thing is society has to change. I mean, it's not just that women need the skills to say, look, I'm unhappy and I want to talk to you. Women need permission from society to do that. And I think you see from the earliest ages on the playground, girls and boys acting really differently, right? Mm -hmm. Boys have much more permission to be like, yo, I'm the best and I'm going to beat you and you don't know what you're doing and trash talk each other. And they get a muscle for that. When girls have problems on a playground, what you often see is they just like peace out. They're like, I'm done with the game or I'm walking away. So all of that then culminates, um, again, not just in a world where women and girls aren't, they don't know what to say, but they don't have that permission. So I think society also has to give women space to assert themselves, to resolve their conflicts openly 
And as long as that continues not to happen, I think we're going to have stories like yours, Jean, where you walk away from predominantly female environments and you just say, God, what just happened there? Like, that did not make me feel good. So what are the best ways to deal with a conflict like that when it's not as much in your face, perhaps, as it is backwards behavior or, you know, sort of dig but under the covers? Yeah, it's, that's a great question. And I, I have to say, I'm, I have been experiencing something myself where I think it's really easy to turn the other cheek or look the other way and kind of go into this denial. It's very easy for us as women, because so much of this is indirect, to not pay attention. And I think that can be our first mistake, is that we have to take note. We have to say, how does this feel right now? And what are my choices? The confrontation moment is really hard because, as many women will tell you, um, there's a lot of denial that happens. Oh, I wasn't doing what you think I was doing. Right. Like, yeah, that's totally in your head. I mean, women are expert gaslighters. And part of the reason for that, as are girls, is because it's really easy to get away with things that no one's entirely sure happened to begin with. So I think the second thing that has to happen is that if you do talk to someone about what's happened and they deny it, you have to have authority in your own perspective and your own experience and not second guess yourself. And then the third thing I think is you have to try to keep allies around you who celebrate you when you shine. Um, the journalist Ann Friedman calls it shine theory, this idea that if you surround yourself with women who succeed, like you are, they're also going to lift you up as well and that that is going to only make you more successful and happier. But it is true. I mean, I think a lot of women struggle um, to celebrate each other's success. But I don't know that that has to do with the evil of women as much as it has to do with a society that still hasn't given them permission to fully celebrate that. We are big Ann Friedman fans here. I have Yay. to tell you. Yay. Awesome. Yay. And everyone should subscribe to her newsletter because it is just brilliant and wonderful and makes us smile every single time we read it. It's just fabulous. I was interested when you talked about your big flame out failure, and I will come around to money for those people who are listening and are saying, when will she talk about money? I'm getting to it right here. You talked about quitting at your Rhodes Scholarship. When is it okay to quit? And what does that teach us about resilience? I mean, where's the line? Yeah, I think that's such a great question. And actually, Tim Ferriss on one of his recent podcasts just explored this very question. First of all, we live in a society that is really romanticizing grit and persistence and sort of sticking with it at all costs. And I think we all need to kind of cast a bit of a cautious eye on that dialogue because there is a point where persisting becomes really painful and harmful. And so I think one of the things that you have to ask yourself is, um, am I making any kind of progress at all that is giving me personal meaning, right? Because I think one of the reasons why we tend to not give up is because we're so worried about what other people think. Mm -hmm. And so I think the question first is, does this have intrinsic value for me? Or am I more fearful about what other people will think or how others will judge me? I think that's, that's one very big question. And I think a second question you ask yourself is, hey, what's the worst that could happen? if I do quit? And do I have the resources to deal with that? And at Smith College, where you know my most recent work has been profiled, that's a question we're asking our students all the time as they think about taking risks. And quitting is also a risk. Yeah. Yeah. It's not it, taking risks doesn't always connote like, oh, I'm going to do a startup. Like taking a risk means walking away from that startup. 
You know, interestingly, as you detail that filter, what happens to me if I don't do this? What happens to me if I do? That's the same line of questioning that I apply to making a purchase that you're not sure that you should make, which is another form of risk or making an investment that you're not sure that you should make. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I also think that money is such a highly sensitive issue that we become really defined by. So to me, it makes a lot of sense. I think you're astute to connect money to the issue of failure, because I think, especially for me as a woman who know I'm trying to learn more, but I know I also doubt myself and I, I assign a lot of meaning to failing around money, more meaning that I might assign to other failures in my life. And so I think money is one of those issues that really forces us to think about who we are and how much do we know and where are we going in life? And failures become very meaningful. Why do you think that is? Why do we assign more meaning to failure around money than we do to failure at yoga or to failure at not being able to accomplish something else? What is that? Well, I think part of it, as I was trying maybe not very articulately to say, is that it just has to do with our future, our mortality, you know, who am I going to be in 20, 30, 40 years? And will I be able to support myself? And so I think money has to do not just with who we are right now, but like who we are later on and who is looking out for us, right? Money is how we look out for ourselves. And so in some ways, the way we manage our money is a kind of act of self-respect, which, you know, I don't mean to make it all about women, but since we are talking we are. mostly about women, like, I think that we struggle with that. And I also should say, and I don't know if your listeners agree, I think because of the stereotypes around women and money, I know I feel especially nervous to make sure that I don't um, kind of reinforce what everyone thinks about women and money, that I try to be wise about it. Sorry about the bark barking. No, dog. welcome. Uh, welcome to the program. What's his name? <laughs> Uh, this is this is a dog that is currently staying with me named Winter, um, who has not been media trained, unlike my other dog. <laughs> it's fabulous. We love all dogs. Yeah. My my dog okay. would bark if he were here. Okay, great. Well, my other dog, like I said, has received really high level media training. Um, Rachel, I want to I want to come back to this in just a second, but Winter and I would like to remind everyone that her money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. And Fidelity is focused on helping women like us take charge of our financial lives because we all deserve the lives that we work so hard for. And that means being able to step up and deal with failure or the idea that we're not doing it perfectly or the idea that we perhaps don't have enough confidence to accomplish the things that we want to accomplish. These are all very important issues to deal with because it's not like money is optional. Money is the tool that you need to master in order to accomplish the things that you want in your life. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find more conversations like this one with Rachel Simmons. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times. So you brought up the stereotypes. We're talking again with Rachel Simmons, author of Odd Girl Out, whose new program at Smith College is called Failing Well. You brought up the fact that there are a lot of stereotypes around women and money. And some of them are truly stereotypes, and some of them are actually research-based. And there are a lot of studies that show that women are actually just as good as men are when it comes to investing, but we don't believe we are. We don't have the confidence. How do you deal with that? 
Oh, such a good question. Um, really makes me miss talking to you because you always ask the great questions. Thank you. So, so I think what this, this is really a big prong of what we're doing at Smith, which is that we're working with students on their belief system, because I think what our young women believe about their capacity to learn and to improve upon a skill that may not be where they want it to be is just as important as the talent or gift that they bring to the skill itself. And so what we're trying to do in some of my workshops, I'm trying to get students to subscribe to the belief that it's not whether or not you have this innate talent or gift around money. It's whether or not you're going to practice. It's are you going to listen to Gene Chatsky's podcast as much as you can? It's are you going to um, do some practice investing or take a class at the college that's about investing? It's how you apply yourself. It's the effort that you put in. Many of your listeners may have noticed that a study came out recently that received quite a bit of media coverage that showed that between the ages of five and six, girls make a shift around thinking that they should not engage in activities that requires you to be smart. That essentially at five years old, they're offered the chance to do something that smart people do well at. And they're like, yeah, I'll totally do that. By six, they say, oh, that's for smart people. I'm not going to do it. Um, they're also less likely at the age of six to believe that their gender is not brilliant or is less brilliant than the male gender. So this is happening early, but this is very important. It is a belief that seems to appear. They are not born with that belief. And so fast forward now to undergraduates, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, we are working with those beliefs and trying to get them to change through their experiences, through interactive workshops with me, how they approach these things that they feel nervous about improving in themselves. Is there an element of fake it till you make it? I have to say it's one of the best things I ever learned as a 20-something working in New York City Hall. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, and it was, of course, a man who taught me that, who took me into a meeting with the mayor and several deputy mayors in City Hall and said, we have no idea what we're doing, but we're going to act like we do, and everyone's going to believe us. And it was like one of those crucible moments where I was like, okay, this is what dudes do. I'm going to do this. Uh, and so, yeah, I tell the students about that all the time, and I think that, um what they've also found helpful are things like Amy Cuddy's TED Talk mm -hmm. on um, power posing, which, you know, power posing is a kind of fake it till you make it. It's about I'm freaking out in this moment. I'm going to try to make my body language simulate something that makes me feel better than I do. So um, these are the kinds of life skills. Some people call them soft skills that we see a lot of young people coming to college without. They don't have these skills. Um, there was an article in The Atlantic recently by Jean Twenge about um, what she calls Generation iGen. Um, and she's talking about the fact that fewer and fewer young people have jobs. Um, there's also data that I've seen fewer and fewer young people do chores. So they're spending a lot of time in school. They're spending a lot of time in activities. And that's not necessarily giving them those skills that are going to help them get ahead once they're out of college. So interesting. I was thinking as you were talking about that, the soft skills that the young women on my team and my daughter actually are really good at self-talk. You know, I've heard my daughter sort of talk herself up when she's in a difficult situation. You go, Julia. You can do this, Julia. She's going to kill me. But she's good at it, you know, and I think it helps her. And that's not a skill that I grew up with. Well, and I think Julia might be maybe more Jean Chosky's daughter than you're giving her credit for, because I will say that um, because actually we know that a lot of young women don't do that. A lot of young women are not only highly self-critical, but they lack 
what researchers call self-compassion. Um, and I have a new book that will be coming out in March, which is going to have a whole chapter on that because there's so much research supporting the practice of talking to yourself in a gentle way, not so that you can be like, don't worry about your mistakes. It's all fine just so that you can clear your headspace enough to be motivated to continue forward. So I think your daughter might be a little bit more of a unicorn than you're giving her credit for. Um, but uh, and she'll probably also hate me for calling her a unicorn. No, she's a unicorn in many ways. I, we love that. <laughs> I do want to, before we wrap up here, I want to talk about this new book because it's got a great title, Enough As She Is, How to Help Girls Move Beyond Impossible Standards of Success to Live Healthy, Happy, and Fulfilling Lives. So two questions. Enough as she is. Did you rip that from Bridget Jones? Because it just sounds like the line in the movie where they all toast to Bridget exactly as she is. Oh, no, I didn't even know that. Actually, no, it was my publisher because I'm a terrible titler of anything, except when I'm coming up with things to say about my five-year-old. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Not really kidding at all. Um, no, it was. It came from my publisher. I think they were trying to. They were like, "What is she trying to say here?" It was a tough book to title, um, and some people didn't love it. But it, so, so that's. It's not from Bridget Jones. And what is the next question? The next question is: Tell us a little bit more about it. How young are these girls? Is this for us as parents? Is it for yes. the girls to read themselves? How do we spread the word? Because I love this. Thank you. Um, well, it's really for any parent of a middle school or high school girl or a college girl or even just after college because it's really about the incredible stress that these high achieving, often high achieving young women are under. And it's my guide to parents to help your daughter achieve without giving up her self-worth and where possible to redefine success on healthier terms. Because I feel like girls should be able to achieve distinction without beating themselves up and without being so unhealthy and one of the things that we're seeing is the data on girls' wellness has bottomed out. It's really verging on a mental health crisis for young women in this country. We've seen unprecedented levels of depression of girls saying they're overwhelmed. And so my workshops um, that I've been kind of developing for many, many years in different places, I sort of see this book as one big workshop that you take as a parent, all these different ways that you can help your daughter. And, you know, it's a really serious issue. And my heart breaks sometimes when I work with these college women, um, high school girls, middle school girls, even in sixth grade, these girls are worrying about getting into college. So it's very hands-on. Again, it's about how you help your daughter you know, distinguish herself, but also be well. It is such an important topic. I hope that you'll let us invite you back when it comes out. Absolutely. It would be a total honor. Rachel Simmons, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Such a pleasure, Jean. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. So Kelly has joined me in the studio. Are you a self-talker? I live in my head. Of course I'm a self-talker. You are. Um, my mom probably diagnosed that early on that I am always in my head. She started to make sure how I was communicating with myself was in a healthy way. I've had multiple conversations with my mother growing up about self-talk. She can see how if talk goes in the wrong direction or if it becomes a negative radio, what it can do to your emotion and your emotional well-being. So she caught it early on. Oh, way to go, Dottie. Way to go, Dottie. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I, I just, I thought that that was such a great conversation. I love the first line that she said or one of them, like, we're all still girls inside. Yeah. 
It's yeah, so I mean, true. I don't see myself as a 52-year-old woman. You know, when I look in the mirror, no, I do. But are you kidding me? No, but people. when I... <laughs> when I... No, don't even go there. When I... No, in my head, I'm much younger than that. You mm-hmm. know, in my head, I'm still... I don't know. I don't even know what age, actually. But I've had this conversation with my mother, and she's not her age either. Let's go to our mailbag. Our first question comes from Mary. She writes, I pulled 138000 out of my 401k five years ago to help my brother get his restaurant off the ground. I, of course, paid the penalties, and now, as he is expanding and is on restaurant number three, he is ready to pay me back. My question is, his accountant is concerned that I will be heavily taxed. Why would I be taxed on the payback of a loan? Because depending on how you set this up, my guess is the accountant, and I'm not an accountant, is concerned that this will register as income to you. I would probably structure the payback differently if you need the money all at once versus if you don't. So right now, any individual is allowed to give $14,000 a year to anybody else without any tax consequences. But if your brother is married, He and his spouse could both give you that $14,000, which would be $28,000 in one year. And if you're married, he and his spouse could both give the $14,000 to each of you, which would expedite the payment without having tax consequences. And essentially, depending on whether or not your brother is repaying you for the penalties, which you paid, and I hope that he is, you'll be able to wipe this debt out over the course of four years without dealing with with any tax consequences. So that's the way I would look at it. As I said, not an accountant. So it's probably a good idea for you to just ask your accountant as well as your brother's accountant what their take would be on this. Great. Thank you, Mary. Now one from Tori, who started listening to her money a couple of months ago after a friend suggested it. Thank you, friend. She says because of the podcast, she sought out a fee-only financial advisor who is helping her and her husband figure out where their pots of money need to go. She writes, we are in the ninth inning of a bull market. We have 50000 to invest. Our financial advisor wants us to enter the market slowly, put a little in each month so that when the market drops, we go all in. A different advisor suggested we put in the 50000 all at once because no one knows what's going to happen with the market and it might take another two years for it to drop. I want to put in the 50000 all at once. I'm also well aware that I'm an impatient person, but is that the wrong decision? So... I agree with actually both advisors on different things. I agree with the second advisor that it could take another two years for us to have a correction in the market because I don't know when that correction is going to come, but I do know that at some point it will come. I agree with the first advisor on the concept of dollar cost averaging. I think buying over time, particularly... I mean, she clearly believes, because she wrote it in her question, that we're in the ninth inning of a bull market. So, Tori, from your own sentence, you seem to indicate that you believe that the correction is coming sooner rather than later, which, again, would argue for dollar cost averaging. The other factor to consider is what is your timing in life? When do you need this money in life? Even people who put money into the market right before it corrected in 2008 have seen their money come back as long as they didn't panic, pull it out, sit on the sidelines in cash while things were continuing to run. So if you know that you're that kind of person, that you have 
fortitude that you're going to put the money in, that it's going to be there for 10, 15, 20 years, it's a less important question overall, and either way would do it. Um, I'd go for the dollar cost averaging. I'd probably just do it over the course of a year, make sure it's done, and go from there. And it's great that she got two different opinions. I love that. We talk about that, of course, with other consumer buying decisions, but I don't think we've heard of it for investment decisions. You know, we heard of it a little bit after um, the Madoff scandal, Mm. um, where people were thinking about diversifying their advisors. And and that was more in terms of not getting separate opinions, but making sure that one advisor who was managing their money as a a wealth portfolio Mm -hmm. where they're paid by a percentage of assets under management, that one person didn't have control over the entire thing. So we've we've heard about it that way. But no, I'm always forgetting a second opinion. And in fact, she got three because she asked us. That's true. So there we go. Love that. Well, thank you, Tori. Let us know what happens. And our final question is from Maggie. She writes, I'm a 33-year-old woman with a steady job, a mortgage, and working towards building up my 403B and investments. I am currently unmarried with no children, but my partner and I have started talking about the future, marriage, and children. My question, can I start saving for college for kids that do not exist yet, or in the event that we cannot have kids, could I contribute towards my nieces and nephews' education? Um, The answer is absolutely. I love the fact that you're thinking of your nieces and nephews in addition to your own kids. The way to do it is to open a 529 for yourself, essentially. And you can, 529s have no age limit. You could use the money if you wanted to go back to school and take classes. And then when you have those aforementioned kids, because you're allowed to transfer 401k assets to other members of your family, you just transfer the money. Great. Thank you. You're only allowed to transfer once a year. So just that's just a little hitch, but it shouldn't matter. You'll only transfer once anyway. Thank you, Jean. Very, very happy to have all of these questions. I hope that you will keep them coming. We uh, really like to hear whatever is on your mind. And if you have a consumer issue, remember, our colleague Hayden is getting people's money back. Mm -hmm. I'm talking thousands of dollars. She really is. Don't miss that opportunity. Before we wrap up, in this week's Thrive segment, I just want to pick up where we left off with Rachel Simmons and give one more example of how having the confidence to ask for more can pay off big. I was reading Tanya Rapley's blog. She writes a blog called My Fab Finance, and I think this line says it all. The difference between successful business people and those who just get by is the ability to ask for and receive what you want. Research shows the average starting salary of male MBAs are almost $4,000 more than female counterparts. And it's partly because the men were eight times more likely to ask for more money. Only 7% of the women attempted to negotiate that initial salary offer. Sometimes we're afraid of hearing no. Sometimes we're afraid of inconveniencing the other person or we're fearful of being perceived as too aggressive. But it's important to remember that most of your future salaries will be negotiated as a percentage of what you earn now. So take a deep breath. Do some Amy Cuddy power poses and graciously ask, can you do better? The answer may be no, but if you don't ask, the answer is always no. Thanks so much to all of you for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to our guest, Rachel Simmons, for a terrific conversation. 
Our show is sponsored by Fidelity. We always want to thank them for their contributions. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. And join me next time. We will be talking with Jeannie Thompson, who is a thought leader at Fidelity. She's got some incredible new research about which life events stress us out the most. We'll talk soon.